I invite you to please stand as we read the Word of God together. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read a portion of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But we'll begin in Genesis 1, 31. Genesis 1, 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And now chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Pray with me. Father, we want to begin by thanking you for being the creator of the world. We exalt and honor and praise you as the sovereign creator of all things, that you created everything out of nothing, and that you made the world to be very good, and that you made the world to be without sin, without corruption. 
and that everything honored you and glorified you. Everything reflected your beauty and your holiness. And then we read in Genesis 3 of the serpent who comes into the pristine garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were and he led them to sin against you. As Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And following that moment, the entire course of the world would change dramatically. And we are now living in a world that is still experiencing the consequences of what we have just read in Genesis 3. We understand that there is a real enemy. One who is your arch enemy and one who is our enemy as your children. He is cunning, he is crafty, he is deceitful, he is extremely skilled in leading people astray away from you. But Father, we also understand that you are our protector, our defender, and that you are stronger than the devil. And that ultimately what the devil does serves your eternal purpose. We thank you for even here in Genesis 3, after the fall, that there is the immediate promise of your deliverance, of your defeat of this serpent. Father, as we enter into a new phase of our study this morning in Ephesians 6, as we look at the spiritual warfare that we are living in, I pray, O God, that you would help us to be equipped, to be prepared, and that we would do so by knowing who our enemy is and what he is like. Father, we thank you above all for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our strong and mighty Redeemer, and that we are in him and that no one can snatch us out of his hand including the enemy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please take your Bibles once again and open to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. It is a tremendous joy and thrill and privilege to study this wonderful epistle verse by verse as we have done many months now. But in the providence of God, we come to a new passage, a new study in this book, and we're going to entitle it, The Christian Spiritual Warfare, Part 1, Knowing the Enemy. So if you would direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, I'm going to read from verse 10 to verse 17. Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In 2009, the Barna Group did a survey in which they asked about 1,900 professing Christians about their view of Satan. 59% of them agreed that Satan is a symbol of evil and not a real living being. 35% of them agreed that Satan is, in fact, a real living being. And the remaining 6% said they were not sure what they believed about the existence of Satan. The survey proves one thing. There is a tremendous amount of confusion, even within the visible church, about the existence and the nature of Satan. Some believe that Satan is only a symbol for evil. Some believe that he is a real living being, while others believe that he is just some sort of a myth or some sort of religious superstition. And so I want to be very clear at the outset of this study. If you believe in the Bible as the Word of God as we do, then you must believe in the existence of Satan as a real living being. Not a mere symbol for evil, not a myth, and not a superstition. And that is because the Bible clearly emphatically and repeatedly teaches that Satan is a real living being. I agree with John Blanchard who said, quote, to deny the fact of Satan is to deny the truth of Scripture, end quote. With this in mind, turn your attention to the last phrase of Ephesians six eleven, where the Apostle Paul refers to the schemes of the devil. That phrase alone, beloved, is enough to affirm that Satan is not a myth, that he is not a symbol for evil, that he is not a superstition, but rather he is a real living being. Why? Because only a real living intelligent being can develop, organize, and propagate schemes. Now this passage that is before us is the classic biblical text on the Christian's spiritual warfare. 
And personally, for a long time, I have been very excited about getting to this passage and to study it in detail and to do so with you. And so this is going to be a thrilling, edifying, and very helpful study for us as we engage in spiritual warfare. But with our time this morning, we are not actually going to expound upon Ephesians chapter 6. Instead, what we are going to do is develop a biblical understanding of Satan. In the language of systematic theology, we are going to study Satanology, the doctrine of Satan. And this is necessary for at least two reasons. Reason number one, because many people's understanding of Satan is informed by the media rather than the Bible. They gain their understanding of the devil, of Satan, and demons from movies, from music, from fictional books, rather than the Bible. And this is tragic. This is terribly unfortunate because the only source of information that we have in this world about Satan is the Bible. This is the only source. Therefore, if we are going to know the truth about Satan we must develop a biblical understanding of Satan. Now, reason number two. If we are going to be successful in our spiritual warfare, it is imperative that we know who the enemy is, that we identify him, that we know who he is, and that we know what he is like. Therefore, the very first step that we are going to take in preparing ourselves for spiritual warfare is knowing the enemy that is against us. And to do this, we're going to consider five biblical realities about Satan, all of which are printed for you in the bulletin. And we're going to begin with Roman numeral one, the origin of Satan. In order to understand the origin of Satan, we have to understand the origin of angels. The Bible teaches that God created two classes of moral, intelligent beings, namely angelic beings and human beings. And though there is little information on the subject, it seems that God created the angels on the very first day of creation week, before he created the earth and before he created man. Turn with me to Job 38, because here I believe we gain insight into the origin of Satan, if you will. Job 38. Job 38, beginning in verse 4. And this is where God is now speaking to Job. And in verse 4, he begins to question Job with regard to the creation of the world. He says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Now notice verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
There are two parallel phrases in verse 7. Morning stars, sons of God, those are titles in the Bible for angels. And the picture is that as God is creating the earth, the angels already exist. They are observing God create the world, and they are singing to God with joy. And so they already exist before the creation of the earth. They already exist before the creation of man. They are watching God create the world. So it seems, based upon this passage, that they were created by God on the first day of creation week. Now again, I want to stress the fact that angels and humans are distinct. They are not the same. Angels are angels and humans are humans, and they will always remain distinct. And this is important because I have heard people say things like this, when we go to heaven, we will become angels. Well, that kind of thing is not true. It's just not true. Once an angel, always an angel. Once a human being, always a human being. And there are a number of significant differences between angels and humans, and I want to mention three of them. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are three that I do want to bring to your attention. Number one, the first difference is this. Human beings have physical bodies... Whereas angels do not, they are spirit beings. For this reason, angels are invisible to us as God himself is invisible to us. Number two, human beings marry and reproduce, whereas angels do not. When God created the human race, he began with just one man, and then from that one man he made the woman, and then he gave them the command in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which they did. To this point, there are about six billion of us on planet earth, and so I would say they fulfilled that command. But when God created the angelic race, he did things altogether differently. He created all of the angels simultaneously. So whereas the number of human beings is always increasing through childbirth, the number of angels was fixed by God on the first day of the week, and therefore it does not increase. Now this opens up a very interesting question. How many angels did God create? Does anybody know? (laughs) How many angels did God create? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a specific answer, but it does indicate that they are extremely numerous. uh, Revelation 5.11 says it this way, talking about angels, and it says, The number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The term myriad is ten thousand. So ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands. And so what does that say to us about the number of angels that God made? They are numerous, extremely numerous. They are innumerable, too many to count. There could easily be millions of angels, if not billions of angels that God created on the first day of creation week. Now, the third significant difference that I want to bring attention to between humans and angels is this. Angels do not die. 
They are deathless beings. There is no such thing as a funeral for an angel because they do not die. So angels are invisible spirit beings who do not reproduce, nor do they die. And out of the innumerable number of angels that God created, only three of them are specifically mentioned by name in the Bible. Gabriel, Michael, and Satan. Those are the only three that are named in the Bible. So what is the origin of Satan? He is one of the innumerable angels that God created on the first day of the week. This much we know according to God's word. And now we go to point number two, the second reality of Satan, the fall of Satan. When God created the angels, the Bible affirms in Genesis 1.31 that all that he made was very good including all of the angels. And God's purpose in creating all of these millions, if not billions, of angels was for them to worship him and to serve his purposes in the world. But at some point after creation week, some point after Genesis 1.31, and before the events of Genesis 3.1, there was a revolt in heaven against God that was led by one of the angels, namely Satan. And Satan was not alone in this rebellion because one-third of the angels that God made joined with Satan in this revolt against God, and as a result, they were all banished from heaven. At that point, they became fallen angels, also known as demons. And one of them, we know his name, Satan. 1 John 3.8 says, The devil has sinned from the beginning. From the beginning. At some point, very soon after the creation of the world, the devil became a sinner. In fact, he was the very first sinner. He is the original sinner, and he has been sinning ever since. Now, we aren't given much information about the fall of Satan, but we do have two Old Testament passages that may refer to his fall. Now, I want to let you know that these are disputed passages. Not everybody believes that these passages indicate the fall of Satan, but others do believe that is, in fact, what they are saying. So let's look at them together, beginning in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And according to the context, what we have is judgment on the king of Babylon. That is very clear. But some see in this passage that there is a larger person involved than just the king of Babylon, and that person would be Satan. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, let me read it. How have you fallen from heaven? O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. 
But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Now, if this is talking about the fall of Satan, you will notice the proud I wills of Satan. And so, again, if this is giving us insight into the fall of Satan, what is the sin that is being identified in him? It's pride. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The second Old Testament passage that may reveal the fall of Satan is Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. So turn with me to this passage. Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11. And again, within the context, it is talking about judgment upon an earthly ruler. This is the king of Tyre. But it may be talking about something beyond the king of Tyre. Again, the devil, Satan. Ezekiel 28 and verse 11. And again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now notice how he describes the king of Tyre. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden... The garden of God, every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So he's describing his beauty. He's describing how he is with God in the Garden of Eden and so forth. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub. The cherub is a term for angel in the Old Testament. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you, by the abundance of your trade, you, will, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. So that may be a picture of the fall of Satan in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. Now again, those are disputed passages, but one passage that is not disputed that does reference the fall of Satan is 1 Timothy 3.6. In that passage, Paul is giving qualifications for those who would be leaders in the church, and Paul gives the following Restriction, not a new convert. Why? Why is that important that you don't have a new believer as a pastor? So that he will not become conceited, pride, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So Paul is identifying the sin of the devil, the original sin of the devil, as being that of pride. That is what incurred the condemnation of this angel that God created, pride. So the devil 
is a, an angel who has fallen, and the sin that originated in his heart that caused him to fall is the sin of pride. This brings us to point number three, the works of Satan. Now, you're familiar with the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not one that I necessarily use in evangelism, but it is one that is familiar. But the opposite could be said of the devil. The devil hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. That is true of Satan. The purposes and the plans and the works of Satan are entirely sinister and entirely evil. Satan is not a symbol for evil, but he is the embodiment of evil. He is evil all the way through. He is evil and nothing but evil. He is the arch enemy of God who seeks to oppose God, who seeks to thwart the purposes of God, the ways of God, and the people of God. And the malignant character of Satan is revealed in the many names that the Bible assigns to him. He has two primary names in the scripture. Number one, as I have already said, Satan. The word means adversary. He is the adversary of God. He is the adversary of God's people. The second primary name in the Bible is devil. He is the slanderer. He is the one who accuses. He accuses us before God. In addition to Satan and the devil, the Bible has many other names that it assigns to him, such as the tempter, Beelzebul, which means master of the house, Lord of the flies, it's sort of a strange word. The evil one many times is the phrase that is used to describe the devil, the evil one. The enemy, Belial, which means worthless. The adversary, Abaddon, which means destruction. Apollyon, which means destroyer. And then finally, the accuser of the brethren. Now, which one of those names would you say is noble and good and honorable? None of them. They all define the malignant, evil character of Satan. Further, he is graphically portrayed in Scripture through some very vivid images. He is revealed to be a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. He is revealed in Revelation 12 as the great dragon, which is a very ominous picture. And he is repeatedly called the serpent of old. The serpent of old. And we find that in the book of Revelation several times. And when we read that graphic portrayal of Satan as the serpent of old, what does that direct our minds back to? Something old, right? You're catching on. Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. So let's turn back. I read it earlier, but let's turn to Genesis 3. Because when we hear the phrase, when we read the phrase, the serpent of old, which is repeated in the book of Revelation, it takes us back to the very first time that we are introduced to Satan in the Bible, Genesis 3. 
As you well know, this is when he appears to Eve in the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent. Now in verse 1, what Satan does, it's very interesting, he initiates a conversation with Eve in the form of a serpent of some kind. Maybe this is a serpent that he possesses and takes over. We don't really understand exactly how that works, but nonetheless, he comes in the form of a serpent. He initiates a conversation with Eve, and he begins by, watch this, sowing seeds of doubt in her mind about the character of God. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, here's a talking snake. He said to the woman, indeed, has God said? The first thing he does is address the word of God. He talks about what God has said to her. Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He begins with a question because he's crafty. And notice how he designs the question to misquote God. Somehow he knew what God had said to Adam and Eve in chapter 2, and he is suggesting here that God has placed them with unreasonable restrictions in the garden. He is impugning the character of God. He is impugning the goodness of God. He is sowing seeds of doubt in her mind about the goodness of God. And notice what he's implying. He is implying that he, rather than God, has their best interest in mind. He's so crafty. And so in verses 2 and 3, Eve repeats what God had said back in chapter 2. Look at what she says. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. I mean, God's not restricting us. God is generous. Verse 3, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So she seems to come back saying God has been very generous. God is good with us. He has given us all of this food to eat with one restriction. And if we break that one prohibition, there is a terrible price to pay. Death. And so then we move to verse 4, where Satan now outright contradicts what God has said. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. That is an amazing statement, an outright contradiction of what God has said to Adam and to Eve. He begins by subtly casting doubt into the mind of Eve, and then he outright denies God's word. So what kind of being is this? He is a liar. He is a liar, a very skilled liar. Extremely adept in lying. In fact, what he tells her is this. If you disobey God, you will experience wonderful benefits. Wonderful benefits. Look at what he says in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened 
And you will be like God, knowing good from evil. It is a good thing if you disobey the word of God. You will benefit from this. It will be to your advantage. And the rest, as we say, is history. Because she was deceived, she listened to the lies of Satan, and that led her and Adam into sin and into death. Contrary to what the devil promised. 1 John 3.8 refers to the works of the devil. The works, he is active in working. And what are the works of the devil? Well, for starters, how about lying and how about murder? That is exactly what we find in Genesis 3. The works of the devil are lying and they are murder. And in John 8.44, Jesus says two things about Satan that gives us tremendous insight into the evil character of Satan. He says this, number one, he was a murderer from the beginning. Notice that phrase, from the beginning, taking you back to Genesis 3. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. There is no seed of truth, no hint of truth within Satan. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The works of the devil, beloved, lying and murder. And Jesus in John 8.44 is referring back to Genesis 3 where Satan lied about the word of God. He lied to Eve and through his deceit, what did he introduce into the world? Death. Death. It is through his lies that the fall of man took place, and thus Satan is the greatest murderer in history. Every single human being dies because of what he did. That is mass murder on an unprecedented scale. So, beloved, please know that your enemy is a liar that he is extremely skilled in deceit, and that he is a murderer. That he would kill you if he could. That is his intent. These are his works from the beginning, and they are the works that he even does now. But the Bible gives other examples of the works of the devil. Let me mention a few of them to you. In the book of Job... You know exactly what I'm going to say. We read of the afflictions of Job, which were horrible, and they were caused by Satan. Job loses all ten of his children. He loses all of his wealth. He loses his health. And all of this was brought about by the malicious intent and work of the devil in Satan or in Job's life. In the Gospels, we often read of people being demon possessed, being literally controlled by demons. And what we find oftentimes in the Gospel is not only were they controlled by demons, but they experienced a variety of other severe problems like being deaf, being mute, suffering seizures self-mutilation, wildness of character, violence, insanity, and nakedness. I was reading 
Last night in Luke 13 about a woman who was demon-possessed and that demon caused her to have this horrible problem with her back where she was hunched over for, I think, 18 years. And so the works of the devil include possessing people and inflicting horrible health problems upon them. In the New Testament, we read of Satan opposing believers in a variety of ways. He tempts us to sin. He employs schemes to disrupt the church. He can be a thorn in the flesh and torment us as he did with Paul. He hinders our plans to serve the Lord. He can instigate persecution against the church. He accuses us before God. These are more works of the devil. In the future tribulation, he will energize the Antichrist who will be able to perform signs and wonders. During this time, he will persecute the nation of Israel. And at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, he will lead a final war against God. Again, these are the works of the devil, and they are nothing but evil and vicious and malignant. But, beloved, his greatest work, the greatest work of the devil is that of spiritual deception. He expends the vast amount of his time in doing a preventing work. That is, the work of preventing people from receiving the gospel. Let me give you some examples. In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, the devil is in that parable. And he is the one who does what? He snatches away the seed of the gospel. Jesus speaking, Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. He has a preventing ministry. He's preventing that seed from going into the soil and producing fruit and life. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the one who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He has the capacity to produce spiritual blindness so that they cannot understand, that they cannot see the gospel, that it does not make sense, that it does not penetrate their hearts. In Ephesians 2.2, the devil, as Paul says, is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is a very profound statement. If you are lost this morning, if you are not a Christian, this is true of you. The devil is working in you as a child of disobedience. The devil rules the hearts of non-Christians, of unbelievers. In fact, the Bible says the devil is their father and they are his children. In 2 Timothy 2.26, the devil ensnares people and holds them captive to do his will. That is another work of the devil. In the book of Revelation, it says the devil is the one who deceives the whole world. He deceives the nations. Go to any nation in the world and you will find the work of the devil on full display in deceiving people about their spiritual life, about Christ, about the gospel, about where they stand before God, about religious matters. He deceives the nations of the world, the whole world. So Satan is probably sweating right now because he is so busy working 
so busy at work. Well, now we come to point number four, the power of Satan. The power of Satan. And there are two things that you need to know about the power of Satan. Number one, his power is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Satan is not only your enemy and my enemy. Listen, he is an extremely formidable foe. Extremely formidable. Probably more than we realize. Like all angels, Satan is much more powerful than human beings. On one occasion in the Bible, we read of a single angel who killed 185,000 people on one occasion. That is extreme power. That is extraordinary power. The Bible describes Satan as having extraordinary power in these ways. He is the ruler of this world. Guess who said that? That is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking of the devil. He is the ruler of this world. He is the God of this age. He is the prince of the power of the air. His power is so great that the Bible describes him as a ruler, as a God, as a prince. That is extraordinary power. According to 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is the one who controls the entire world system that is opposed to God. In a parable, Jesus referred to the devil as a strong man. He is the strong man. And what is more, he is the leader of all other fallen angels. He is the ruler of demons, Matthew 12, 24. On more than one occasion, the Bible refers to the devil and his angels. That is the demons. They are his. They are under his control, under his leadership, under his authority. So Satan leads and organizes the demons in a very carefully calculated war against God, against God's purposes, and against God's people. So listen, here's some really bad news. The devil is against you. He is your enemy, as are all of the demons. As a Christian you are their enemy. But there is a second thing that you need to know about the power of Satan. It is extraordinary, yes, but it is also limited and restricted. And in my heart, I am leaping in praise to God for those two realities. His power is limited and restricted. When I say that Satan's power is limited, this is what I mean. As extraordinarily powerful as Satan is, he is not equal with God in any way, including his power, the extent of his power. The devil possesses extraordinary power, but listen, it is not omnipotent power, it is not almighty power like God. He does not have that kind of power. Neither is the devil omnipresent like God. As a created being, he can only be in one place at one time. He cannot be here and in China at the same time. He is limited in that way. He is not omnipresent like God. 
And neither is the devil omniscient like God. The devil knows a lot. He is more intelligent than we are. But listen, he doesn't know everything. He doesn't know everything. Listen carefully. This is important to note. The devil does not have the power to read your mind. He does not have that power. The Bible never says anything, not one thing to suggest that he has that kind of power. The only one who has the power to know your thoughts is God. Only God. He knows your thoughts from afar. Psalm 139, the same could not be said of the devil. Now he knows how we think. By observing our behavior, he can watch us and understand us and become skilled at our behavior and how we think. But he does not know what we are thinking at any given moment. He does not have that power. But not only is Satan's power limited, it is also restricted. It is restricted. And what I mean by this is that he cannot use the extraordinary power that he has to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He can't do that. Why? Because his power is restricted by God. Restricted by God himself. In other words, the devil is not sovereign. God is. Greater is he who is in you, 1 John 4, 4, than he who is in the world. Who is greater in power? It is God. Who is the only sovereign of the universe? It is the Lord God. It is not Satan. Let me give you some examples. The devil could not afflict Job without what? God's permission. God gave Satan permission to afflict Job. God gave Satan permission to take his children, to take his wealth, and to take his health. But he couldn't do it without God's permission. God is sovereign, not Satan. Another example, in Luke 22, we learn that the devil wanted to sift Peter like wheat. Jesus tells Peter about this that Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now, what would you say if you were Peter and Jesus tells you that? I would say, well, Jesus, you told him no, right? But the point is that the devil, his plan for Peter and even the other apostles was to shake them violently like you do when you're sifting wheat so that those men would fall away. He wanted to destroy Peter's faith, but he couldn't do it without first asking permission from God. That is an amazing reality. So when you think of the devil, you need to think of him this way. He is on a leash. He can go this far and no more. He cannot do anything without the permission of God. 
He is a roaring lion who would love nothing more than to devour you, destroy you, but he cannot harm one hair on your head without God's permission. That is glorious. As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. The demons are God's demons in that they are subject to the sovereign power of Almighty God. Now, there's one more point for us to consider, and we're not going to do it this morning. It's Roman numeral 5, the defeat of Satan. And we will look at this next time. And what we are going to do with this point, it is marvelous, it is thrilling. We are going to look at the Gospels and see Jesus' mastery over demons and over the devil. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Some of the things that we have talked about are are frightening to us. They are intimidating as we think about the fact that we have such a powerful, evil, malicious foe. But we are comforted in the fact that you are the sovereign Lord over all, including the devil himself. We thank you and praise you that He cannot act outside of your sovereign authority. That he is your devil, as it were. And we thank you for what we will see next time, that he is already defeated. That he has been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. That the devil and the demons are subject to the authority of Christ. We thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We thank you that, O oh God, you are more strong, much more strong than the devil. And that his power is limited compared to yours and that his power is restricted. Father, we bless you for this, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.